and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this month by Spillers. I'm Pippa Roon, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I hope everyone is enjoying the start of spring. Perhaps you're getting out competing or just enjoying the longer light evenings and being able to spend some time with your horses. Our interview on this episode is with National Hunt trainer Lucinda Russell and Peter Scudamore, eight-time champion jockey and now assistant to Lucinda. They reflect on the recent Cheltenham Festival and look forward to the Grand National next month, as well as remembering their big win in the race in 2017 with one for Arthur. We'll never, I'll never forget it, you know, I suppose it's five years ago, but the whole wind-up during that, everything, it was just, uh, it was wonderful and it's, I hope we can do the same again this year. Now, this interview was recorded before one for Arthur sadly passed away in his retirement at the end of last week, so our condolences go to Lucinda and her team. Our podcast continues with advice from Spiller's senior nutritionist Isabel Harker, who will give us an insight into laminitis. Laminitis should be considered a risk for all horses, as it doesn't just affect ponies or those who are overweight. So, as horse owners, what can we do? What preventative action can we be taking? More from Isabel later. For now, gather up your reins and let's get going. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, racing editor at Horse and Hound. And with the national hunt season in full throttle and the Grand National Meeting just around the corner, I'm delighted to be joined this week by a brilliant and distinguished training duo, Lucinda Russell, who has trained Cheltenham and Grade 1 winners and landed the Grand National in 2017, and Peter Scudamore, record-breaking eight-time champion jockey and now very able assistant to Lucinda. A very warm welcome to you both. Thank you very much. That makes us sound very good. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Well, the curtain has just come down on a truly epic Cheltenham Festival. So let's start with um, having a look back at a vintage few days there. Um, Ahoy Senor, first of all, is he OK after his fall in the Gold Cup? He's none the worse, is he? Yeah, he seems fine. Um, we get to attach these horses and I'm putting human emotions in him. He's almost seemed embarrassed when he came home. Oh, bless him. <laughs> He's a very proud horse, probably different than any other horse. We've ever had, you know, some of the great horses like Brindisi Breeze, we've had of Arthur. Brindisi mm-hmm. Breeze would stand at his box and not really want to speak to you. Um, oh. <laughs> but he's, when he rides and I watched him ex- go walking off the gallops, who was just gentle exercise this morning, he seemed to be getting his mojo back. His head as high as he is at Brick. He's physically, he's fine and gradually uh, he's getting his belief in himself back, I think. Oh, good. I mean, he's he's been a brilliant horse for you guys, hasn't he, over the years? He's a very special one. Is he called Hank at home? Is that right? That's right. Yeah, he's been called Hank, actually, since he was a foal. So that's that's rather oh. nice that we do call him that at home. But he, uh, yeah, he's he's been a super horse this season. You know, he won the Cutswold Chase at the end of January. And that was just a fabulous round of jumping for him that day. And really sort of made us excited and, and very hopeful for the Gold Cup. But as you know, he just uh, just he actually jumped really, really well. Then he made one mistake, but unfortunately, he just lost his balance and and uh, and fell. But we'll be back. Uh, we're hoping to take him to Aintree if we can get him back in the right place. We'll take we'll take him to Aintree in a couple of weeks and um, see if he can win the bet for a bowl for the second time. Oh, fantastic! That's something to look forward to. Anyway, hopefully, we'll see him back at back at his best again. Um, and then, of course, you opened the week at Cheltenham with a second success in the Ultima with the brilliant Corrick Rambler. What was that feeling like that day? That's pretty special. Yeah, it was special. I mean, look to be part of that magical day on the Tuesday when Constitution Hill won, and Honey oh, yes. Supple won. Typical of Corrick, 
Rambler to hang his coat on that peg. Yeah. Um, but to do it two years running, Lucy and I uh, walked up those Cotswold stone steps up to the stand, and we always had to pinch ourselves thinking, can't do it twice, you know. Um, and then to us, so it, the immortal lines from the commentator said, as he went over the last ditch, he said that Cork Rambler's in the same position as he was last year, and I th- we looked oh at each goodness. other and said, no, he's not, he's 10 lengths closer. So from there oh, on, wow. he felt he, he, he could always win. But he'd love to do it. You know, I know it's only the handicaps, but but to do it twice is, is pretty special. We realise how fortunate we are. Brilliant. And do, I mean, does it get better the more Cheltenham races you win? Do you get a, a bite of it? Do you get the bug for it? Or and do you appreciate it more? Or is the first winner always the most special? Um, so there's a great expression, isn't there, called peak to peak. And I think that's right. I think we, you know, the first time you win at the Cheltenham Festival, it's just mind blowing. And you realise how historical it is. And it's, it's just a great big, everything happens. You're almost in shock. It's so exciting. But once you've done it once, you just crave it again. It's just, <laughs> it's mad. And I think last year winning, it was, it was fabulous. This year, I think our expectations this year, I think we knew that he could get in the first four, but we weren't sure that he was going to win. So to actually... To actually win was was fantastic, but it just makes you want more. It's just it, it's yeah, the most terrible <laughs> drug, the most effective drug. But winning is really uh, very special. <laughs> winning at that level is even better. Brilliant. Um, and I, I saw a picture of the Princess Royal meeting Corrick Rambler after the race. Is that right? What did uh, what did she say to you guys? Well, Princess Royal rode out for David Nicholson when I was working there, so I would like to think. But she has some respect for me as a horse person. But no, we, we, it, she's a heroine of mine, and we rode out together for a couple of years at David Nicholson's, oh, and it was just a tremendous privilege. And um, seen her earlier in the day at Telton when she watched him in the parade parade ring, and uh, she was stood in the winners' enclosure. And I said, "Would you come and uh, give him a pat?" And she did. And we've got the most. It'll be one for the album, would it? <laughs> so I was so pleased, and yeah, to just sit. Just you see the way she pats him. She's not stood back. Mm-hmm. He appreciates it. Really is the most beautiful photograph of only somebody that is around horses and understands horses could touch him in such a manner that yeah. he almost bends his head around it, doesn't he? Oh, that's special, isn't it? Um, and Peter, you ride Corrit Rambler out every day. Is that right? He's one of your favourites, I hear. Well, it's probably an exaggeration of the term. He takes me for a ride, Rudy. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> What's he like Sometimes then? He, he, he um, allows, he will go to Lucinda's trading program and sometimes he goes to his own. But no, he's a tremendous character. <laughs> um, yes, I do ride him uh, occasionally. Uh, I ride him more in his downtime here. And sometimes when I'm at home, or Derek rides him. But the most dangerous part of being involved with Corrick Rambler is packing him up because he, but after you've got the saddle and bridle on, um, Oh, I've got pictures of my granddaughters on him. He's he's the most beautiful kind oh, wow. horse. You see, it's so difficult packing him up. It happened again this morning. You put, you put the bridle on, turn to put your saddle on, and he just walks off. And he just oh, no. <laughs> runs off down the line of stable. You know, you hear the chit chop, chit chop. Well, the best ones are always the characters, aren't they? They're, um, there's, there's something about them. Um, and Peter, you said as well, you, you actually it's more emotional watching him than ever sort of riding in the race. Is that right? Watching your own horses like, like that? I can't just give... Correct the um, specialty of that. I think as a jockey, you tend to ride a horse, come in. If it gets beat, it's the trainer's fault. If it wins, you're a genius. Um, <laughs> yeah. But when you're involved with him, Lucy's up at quarter past five, beats him at six o'clock. 
you know, as I said, I'm riding him. I think your devotion to them becomes more with all the horses. So I, I feel I'm bearing my soul in some ways more training them than you, you are riding them. So um, th that's the um, passionate emotion you feel about watching them run yet. It's funny because yeah. people always say to me, do you get nervous watching horses race? And I, I always think with all runners, of course you want them to win. But all you want them to do is to be safe. And that's the, the main thing is for them to come home safe. And even, you know, when a horse in Europe falls, you don't think, oh, we could have won the Gold Cup. You just think, as long as he's okay. As long as he's okay, gives us a chance to try again. But that's the sort of main thing. It's it's just the, you know, you, you prepare them the best that you can at, at home. You set them a fair task and you hope that they'll that they'll run well and be okay. And it's it's the same as when you go out on a cross-country course, same as if you watch a show jumper, it's, you know, it's it's the same all sports. Anytime you you send your horse out, every time you turn your horse out in the field for for a roll, you know there's danger there. But um, yes. just as long as they come back in safe, it's fine. Definitely. Um, and talking of which, um, the next stop of a Corrit Rambler is hopefully the big one, the Grand National. Is that right? Has that been the plan all season to head to Aintree at the end? Yeah, I think it'd been in our mind for two seasons really. So you ran in the you ran at Newbury in the Coral Cup. You had a very good race. He was fourth, and that sort of reaffirmed my belief that he could win a national. We were tempted to run him over Christmas period, but that wasn't really the race that was suitable for him. And uh, then we were thinking of going to Lingfield with him. That didn't quite work out for one thing or another. Then I was thinking of going to Kelso with him. Worried about getting a prep race into him before Aintree. And then I think about very little else. And then Luce was just trying to nod off at sleep one night. And I went, Eureka! Why do we <gasps> run him at Cheltenham again? He's a Peter Cheltenham oh, twice. Wow. <laughs> Why do we send him there for his prep race? So yeah. that's where he went. So um, she said, shut up and go back to sleep. <laughs> and the rest is history. Um, and, and now as a result of that, comes into the race as a favourite. How are you sort of feeling about that? Um, it's funny having a favourite. I, mean, I suppose I always think that if the bookies make your horse a favourite, then you've done your job. You've got it in the right race and they obviously think that he's got a chance. So that's yeah. exciting. Yeah, no, it's nice to be um, to be thought of as, as having a good chance. Doesn't affect him. Doesn't really affect the way that we produce him or anything. So really, it's just uh, it's just, just reaffirms that we might have him in the right race. Oh my goodness. Exciting times. And what what are the preparations now between now and then? Is it just a case of ticking over till April? He's on an easy week this week. We've got we trained from two yards. We trained from a farm and from a, a the other yard's got a very stiff gallop. So he'll stay here at the farm for ten days and just have a bit of fun cantering around the fields and um, just uh, getting rid of any stiffness. We've got a water treadmill here, so we use that a lot. Oh wow! And uh, so we yeah. just sort of make sure that he's back in the right physical shape, and then he'll have a couple of pieces of work on the main gallop and then wind down again for the for injury. So uh, yeah, and of course none of you are you're both. Um very familiar with the uh, Grand National, having won it in 2017 with uh, one for Arthur. Are there any similarities between him and Corrick Rampler, or are they completely different horses? I will get very defensive of Arthur and what a very good horse he was. If he'd run him over two mile, he was probably a seller. If he was running over four mile plus, he was probably nearly a gold cup. If that, you know, he was a champion over four mile. Corrick is something in between. Look, they're both brave, wonderful athletes, but... Um, Slightly different characters. You know, Arthur, everything rolled out well for him. Whether it does the same for Korak, I, you know, that's in the, that's up to the good Lord. Yes, 
Exactly. But take me back to that amazing day with um, the lovely Arthur then. Did you go into that race feeling you had a real chance? What, what were sort of the expectations that year? Well, I remember his training preparation had gone so well. And when people asked me, can he win? I remember thinking, saying to them, look, I can't say whether he can win or not, but he's in the form of his life. If he doesn't win oh, wow. this time, he will never win a Grand National because he, he's, he won't be good enough. But if he can have the luck... And you know, we knew he was spot on going there, didn't we? Yeah, that was a it was a brilliant. Um, we'll never, I'll never forget it. You know, this is five years ago, but the whole wind up to it, everything. It was just, uh, it was wonderful, and it's. I hope we can do the same again this year. Definitely. Um, and are you? You mentioned sort of wanting them to come back safe and sound. Are you? Were you sort of watching? Did you manage to watch the whole Grand National, or are you sort of hiding behind the grandstands? I mean, that you know, the running especially feels like an eternity sometimes watching it. So I can't imagine what was it like for you guys watching. No, it is very nice. But I had a sun riding it, and as well, and I loved the sun nearly as much as one for Arthur. <laughs> so I watched it to start with. Um, my son was in front, and Arthur was behind, and then. Somewhere around Canal Turn, they swapped. So Arthur came through. <laughs> I went from hoping my son was all right to cheering yeah. Arthur home. So yeah, we we oh. watched him, watched him all the way, didn't we? I, I remember. I remember. Um, you your grandchildren were a little bit younger there, were they maybe eight and ten, and um, they said, "Grand Grumpy Granddad," because that's what they call him. <laughs> Tom or Arthur wins. Can we have a pony? Oh my goodness! <laughs> of course, the bath or Tom wins. Yes, you can have a pony, and we did have bath or pony. But it was a surreal <laughs> experience watching him from all of a sudden going to the second last. It was clear that he was yeah. going to win. With it. A, he didn't do a famous Dick Francis up the oh running. Oh my goodness! Yes. Um, <laughs> and so, um, you know, some races you you're never quite sure. But it was a real. It was like time stood still from the last to the winning post. It was. Oh, it was a very surreal experience. Yeah. And can you remember much of the aftermath? I mean, the sort of coming into the winner's enclosure. I presume there was champagne and things afterwards as well. I'm surprised some people still speak to me, the stupidity. I said to one of the leading owners, who's an absolute gentleman, I went up to him and said, we won, we won, we won. He said, I know, I was second. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, yes, I, oh, I, I can remember every every single thing that it's, well, what I should remember yeah. to be a bit more dignified yeah. this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a surreal thing. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And like, I always said beforehand, it won't change my life if we win the, win the national. And I was absolutely wrong. It changed our life. It, such a self-confidence, such a... It was just a very, very good party that we had afterwards. But no, in, in answer, in truth, actually, I don't, th I don't think either of us had a drink of champagne at all. You just got shoved around here and there speaking yeah. to all the different press and stuff. <laughs> Yeah. And then uh, when we met up, we might have had one glass and then we had to drive all the way home to Scotland. So it wasn't a very, oh, gosh, yeah. a very good one. <laughs> um, but having had a taste of it, then what would it mean to win again, do you think? Well, as I say, it's just, it's addictive, isn't it? You just want more and more. You want to do it again. Yeah, this much more sensible than me and puts it in that window. <laughs> On my emotional side, nothing will ever take away from what Arthur did for us. We go to the owners at, um, for the New Year's. We always watch his watch Arthur's race and burst into tears and very oh, stupid oh things. Um, so yeah. you, it'll, it'll never, Arthur was first, nothing will ever change, change that. I have a friend of mine I used to ride with called Huel Davis. He was not only a very tight Welshman, also religious. And he said that 
one day at Ascot, he said a prayer to God, please may this horse win, not for the money, but for the horse. Um, I actually would like Corrick Ramlett to win for the horse, so not for the money. Famous, oh. the money will help. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh, that's so special. And Peter, you've mentioned it, but you, you never quite won the race as a jockey, but what are your sort of best memories of riding in the big race? Um, yeah, yeah, I fell at speeches uh, on a horse that was going very well, and uh, oh. I'd been teaching my son how to ride, and I kept telling him to hold him an extra, and when oh. I came in from the race, my <laughs> son was there with a long face and asked me why I had fallen off because I hadn't held on to the next strap so oh, that no. was one outstanding memory I was third on Corbier and I was, remember the race that never was I was trained United Tristan Davis and I had a business together and we trained Earth Summit and Bindari to win the race so since, I've, since I haven't put those boots on and a helmet on to go out and ride it's been a very good race for me but um, you know I, as I said before I really adore these horses that go out and doing it yeah. and uh, it's, it's, it's just a magnificent privilege and try to enjoy the journey of being involved with Corrick. And Lucinda, have you, what are your sort of earliest memories of watching the Grand National? Has it always been a race that's sort of been special to you? Oh, yes, definitely. I, I just remember, I remember Red Realm winning for the third time and just finding it incredible. I, the, the coverage of it beforehand and you knew who Red Realm was and you knew his determination. Mm -hmm. quite an old horse as well when he did win for the third time and I remember going oh, yeah. out telling my pony all about it to Minister. Oh, that's what <laughs> yeah. I'm very young. We've all done that. Don't worry. Funny, isn't it? You know, these horses just get into your heart. Once you've always loved a horse, yeah. you've always, you know, you're always happy. And I, I think, um, I always think back to watching the National when I was a kid and I just watched it because I love the horses and that, that's, I still feel yeah. the same way now. Oh, that's really, yeah, it's very special, isn't it? Um, and I mean, you guys have just had an incredible season this um, last few months. You've had a, you sort of had a strike rate of up to about 50% coming into Cheltenham. Is there a real buzz in the yard at the moment? How's it, um, what's sort of all been happening behind the scenes? Oh, there really is. Um, so we, we have a really good team of people that have been here for many years. Some of them were here when Arthur won the national and um, we have the, the jockeys that work, that ride for us in races. They work for us as well. So they, they're here mucking out first thing in the morning. And I think that adds a specialness to it that when we win at the races, it's not just about us or just about the horses or just about the owners. It's about everyone back at home as well. And everyone's played their part. And I think we're, we're quite a strong team because we tend not to use outsiders. It makes you even more, makes you even stronger, doesn't it, Sku? Yeah, I think on the one hand, people look down and say, oh, poor you, you're in Scotland, you know, and um, <laughs> uh, we'll come up and see you. We'll meet you in York, you know. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so geography-wise, it's, you know, it's not really that far, you know. But Yeah. But the, but it's easy to drive everybody on in a team spirit because it's perceived as the isolation of it. We're equal to the northernmost trainers in, 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 in Great Britain. But we see ourselves training on... The, in the British Isles, uh, we tried, you were taking on the Irish, the, the Welsh, the English, um, and, and the unity is driven together because we are perceived as uh, isolated. And um, But we're very lucky with the staff here, with the Irish come across, with, as I've already mentioned, we're virtually the first stop north well, from anybody who rides coming down from the north. And there's, as you know, with the horse now, and there's a huge amount of show jumping and horse people. Um, yeah, in Scotland, and then just south of us, we have the the borders people from 
uh, Melrose, Kelso, Hoyk, and they ran ride their fantastic riding thing. So a week of you probably all know this, but for those of you who don't, you Southerners who are listening, that the, <laughs> the riding of the borders, towns, boundaries is a very, very big thing, and there's a whole week that and hundreds of people go out and ride. So we have a lot of people who, um, from the from the borders who come and work for us. We can't understand what they say. The Scottish can't understand what they say. The English can't <laughs> yeah. understand what they say. But they're very, very good with their horses. Yeah. And even just geography-wise, I mean, you're well known for getting your horses super fit. Tell me about you've got sort of great gallops and uh, a great sort of setup for them, for the horses there. Yeah, I think, um, okay, so our climate is it's different in Scotland. It, it can be a little bit colder, it can be a little bit wetter, but for us, to train horses that actually works quite well because the coldness kills all the bugs off and the wetness means that the grass is very often fine for galloping on so we um do a lot of work on grass gallops we, we uh, train them at a farm and on a wood chip gallop it's quite steep it rises it's quite a steep gallop and i think that's why we train so many stairs actually so many stamina horses but it's the cross training that really helps them i think and um obviously we do in the pre-training and stuff we do a bit of the bit of show jumping down grids and a little bit of flat work with them as well. And I think that helps them that, you know, long term when they're coming to the fences, they know how to lengthen and shorten. So um, yeah. that's good to really do lots of different things with them. Yeah, I think the environment is, being an Englishman coming up here, been up here 16 or 17 years, I was speaking to my vet squad in who's uh, Spanish. We have great disadvantage, Eugenio and I, because we're both from around Cheltenham, when he... he uh, was in the practice around Cheltenham, and we're surrounded by women. He's got obviously <laughs> his wife and three daughters who boss him. I have a girlfriend and a very strong assistant trainer called, called Jamie Duffier who bosses me. So oh, we, yeah. we have a great deal in common. And, and yeah, and you did say to me this morning, you know, it's lovely here living here in Scotland, isn't it? And I thought, yes, you know, he's right. It is quite like Scotland. Yeah. And, and, um, and I do think the environment is, and, you know, the fresh air, the, the views, I think it's relaxing. You know, when we're looking at why horses do well, and I try not to be arrogant about about it, but we do um, try to go through why they're running well, what they're doing, and to use the cycling analogy, you know, I think 1% of the 10% improvement we can sometimes get is from the environment that they're in. It, it's, it keeps right. them calm, okay. fresh air, um, so it, it's, it's lovely for them. And it's a it's a fine line, I guess, between a sort of prime athlete and and you know having them as happy horses. You, they all get sort of turned out and things every day. Is that right as well? Yeah, I have a really strong belief that goes through everything that you just have to look at the horse and you have to keep look at every single horse and work out whether they're they're feeling good, whether they're happy, whether they're um, miserable or not. And I think mental health in horses is really important. And one of the things every horse every day you know gets turned out. Um, even when it's slurring and stuff, we just put extra rugs on them and turn them out. I think that really does help them. I think if they're in pain, they don't perform well. If they're, uh, you know, down or, or depressed or whatever, they don't perform well. And I think um, we're very lucky. We've got <clears throat> fantastic people that work for us that have been here for a long time that have come from very many different backgrounds. You know, some have come from veterinary backgrounds, some from mm-hmm. um, show jumping, eventing, and others from racing. It's the everyone adds in if there's anything that they're not sure about with a particular horse they they look at it I as Scoo says I've, I feed in the morning and I find that a really good time because it's my time to go around and check the horses and just get into each horse's mind just as I'm feeding them 
you, you oh yeah and learn a lot about how much they're eating and how well they're eating and their you know their their normal attitude their normal behavior and if they have any different behavior that morning so um it's just really about looking at the horses and making sure that they're each one is happy you know we have different horses some of them don't like being out in the field for too long but they don't go out so yeah. long with others like being out for longer yeah i think we were speaking earlier about the mental health of horse really from the way that we're talking about love of horses whatever that means Loving yeah. a human being probably means you something each human gives in a partnership gives something back. Whether you love of a horse, when you're expecting anything back. But I've been involved in the you know, I'm sixty four years of age, I grew up on a farm, we had cattle and sheep and uh, and horses, trained horses. And I don't think the animals perhaps you know, I'm not you know, I don't think our understanding of animals or even the veterinary care definitely the veterinary care of animals wasn't as good as it is now, just the way it was, I think. Yeah. Maybe one of the things, the way humans evolved has done that. And I think the mental health of the horses, when I joke about loving Korak or something, actually maybe not stupid as it you think it is. And I think in most sporting situations, the player, when the horses, the players in our situation will perform well for you if they want to, and they're not in pain, you know, they're not hurting and they're not in pain. So maybe yeah. there is a, method to our matters <laughs> but since i mean since you've teamed up together you just seem to have um gone from strength to strength i remember interviewing lucinda a while back and saying you know how have things changed since um peter's been on the scene and you said everything's got much faster is that right what sort of what's been your influence and how do you two sort of complement each other in the whole process um i think that with all of these with the training and stuff Scoo's very good he can assess horses he can assess them on the gallops um we both still ride and i think his his assessment of horses is excellent uh you know especially oh, wow. with some of the young horses that we've had he's he's very good at knowing just riding them getting into their brain you know what do we each bring to it how has it changed well i i look at it like this in, in that you know as a jockey you never if you're a good jockey you're never in the yard my role is on the gallops and um you know i think i took for granted my ability to ride my ability to assess a horse and it's only really just before COVID when I started riding again and I suddenly realized god I do know what I'm talking about um <laughs> whereas I think Lucinda from the background that she has in the eventing world uh, she's brilliant on the ground feeding them um she's also you know she obviously rides very well and and through her I I, I we laugh when we go to the sales together because when we first were going out we went to the sales we had neither of us had I thought she knew nothing about a horse and uh, she thought I knew nothing about the horse, but oh, no. she is very, very good in the confirmation. And I think I, we, we get help with the form as a chap called Paul McIver, but we get a feel for the form. And I think we sort of have a general pattern in which we're trying to buy horses and I'm sure it'll evolve again and improve yeah. again, but it's working at the moment. And, uh, so I think we've now come to respect our, each other's judgment now for those reasons, we bring different you know, perhaps we gel well at times, even if she does argue with me occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Um, but finally then, um, both, what are your goals for the future? Do you set yourself goals? Are there still things, races you'd like to achieve, things like that? I wouldn't say the specific race. I mean, obviously we'd like correct to win the national. That'd be wonderful. That's that's an important race to us. I think it's nice to get these good horses and give them a chance for greatness. You know, that's, that's mm -hmm. important to us. We've got some absolutely lovely novice hurdlers this season that we bought last summer and uh we're looking forward to them going chasing and they've 
they've done more over hurdles than I could ever have imagined for. So <gasps> really, oh, it's just um, increasing the, the numbers and increasing the, the standard of them. Um, yeah. Just keeping keeping the role going, really. I think my ambitions, as I'm 64, I don't think our ambitions have gone down any. You know, we love what we're doing. Um, yeah. I, want to, I would love to expand bigger and deeper and, um, yeah. Amazing. And I'm, the impression I get from both of you is just this this love of the horse. I mean, is that essentially what it's all about? Is that the secret to your success? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I... Yeah, and that's all over. When I was, well, I don't know, I can't really speak to you, but when I was a kid, all I wanted was ponies because I just loved them. And that, that touch and that feel when you put your hand on them and the, when you're close to them, you know, the, the, the magic that they bring. And that's that's what drives me. I just love, love the horse. And that's, you know, ambitions. Yes, we want to win, but it's to keep on having these, being involved with these amazing horses. I was, I was very privileged. I always took it for granted. I'd always smelt and touched a horse but uh, you know, if for some reason go on holiday for a week or two and I don't smell a touch a horse <laughs> uh, then I really miss it but I I really as I said it's close to the subject we've already touched on being with them every day is is fantastic as opposed to riding them um, and how I see these very very good tough horses is it's just extraordinary that the, what they are and, and they have my utmost respect and and I, and, I, and I love to feel that, you know, I haven't been in the sport so long and be 64 years of age. I'm just in awe of some of them, and I love that. And uh, so that's, you know, you still you want to keep finding them, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's something we can all identify with, I think. Um, well, both of you, it's been really great chatting to you. Look forward to entry and particularly seeing Corrick Rambler in the Grand National. Very exciting times. Thank you very much indeed, Lucinda and Peter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Lucinda and Peter for speaking to us and to Jen too. Now we're going to listen to some advice from the sponsor of this episode, Spillers. So it's over to Isabel Harker, a Spillers senior nutritionist. Hi there. So today we're going to be talking about laminitis and this is a key concern to many owners, which is why Spillers and the Waltham Equine Studies Group have been collaborating with researchers all around the world to try and uncover more answers to this distressing condition. So as horse owners, what can we do? What preventative action can we be taking? Well, we need to firstly consider the risk factors. Of course, there are many, um, but obesity and recent weight gain, so a body condition score, for example, of seven and above, of, of a, a one to nine scale, is considered a, a, a large risk factor to the risk of laminitis. And then, of course, there's the regional fat deposit. So the crusty neck, many of us know what a crusty neck looks like, and that is considered a risk factor as well. Genetics, um, unfortunately, that's something that we perhaps can't control. Previous laminitis, PPID, or, or perhaps better known as Cushing's, insulin dysregulation, or EMS, um, and then high intakes of what we call non-structural carbohydrates, that's sugar and starch. We need to obviously manage these risk factors, but it's important to remember not every laminitic is overweight. Some of them are underweight. Some of them may have Cushing's, as I've said, or EMS. Those types of horses may um, require sort of a more specialised or appropriate management in individual to them. And in that situation, we would always say contact a nutritionist or a feed company care line. So what I'm going to do today really is talk about the risk factors we can manage in the, the sort of generalised laminitis case. So, of course, the first thing 
if obesity is one of the biggest risk factors, it's to manage and maintain and achieve a healthy body weight. We can use body condition scoring, a weight tape, or even a weigh bridge if we're lucky enough to have access to one regularly. Body condition scoring is a system where we can hands-on feel our horses and identify whether they're carrying excess fat in some key areas on their body. There's, there are different methods of body condition scoring. We recommend using the more widely validated one to nine scale, but whichever system you use, the most important thing is to apply it consistently. So it's a one to nine scale, five being ideal, seven and above is considered obese. We need to obviously apply some generalised rules to feeding horses who are prone to laminitis, but these are good considerations for any horse. So we want to restrict the starch and sugar as a guide to less than 250 grams per meal to a 500 kilo horse. If they're severely insulin dysregulated, um, horses, so EMS horses, that may need to be less, which is why you need to um, take some guidance from your vet or nutritionist. Of course, the amount of starch and sugar provided by any feed will depend on how much it's eaten. So a feed that is 5.5% sugar and starch combined, for example, something like a happy hoof, fed at three kilos a day, which is the feeding rate for this 500 kilo horse, would provide 165 grams of starch and sugar. But a feed that's 14% sugar and starch combined, so such as a, a balancer, fed at 500 grams, the feeding rate for a 500 kilo horse, would only provide 70 grams of starch and sugar. So it's really important to not just consider the percentage of the feed that you're using, but also how much is fed. Of course, we also need to remove or restrict grazing. Restricting grazing is obviously the preferred route, but in some cases, a zero grazing situation is required. Ponies, research has shown that ponies may consume up to 5% of their body weight if living out um, on grazing 24-7. This is approximately 12.5 kilograms for a 250 kilo pony dry weight, so a little 12-2 pony. That could be enough calories to fuel a racehorse. Again, grass can have a, a water-soluble carbohydrate, so sugar and fructan content that is very high. The water-soluble carbohydrate level of grass could be 35%. This same pony, this 250 kilo pony, living out for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, could consume as much as two kilograms of simple sugar, which is a huge amount when we consider what we're trying to restrict. So how do we restrict this, this grazing? Well, of course, strip grazing, something that many of us as horse owners have used. And there's been actually, until more recently, very little research done on strip grazing. But we have um, completed some research that has shown that strip grazed ponies do gain less weight than those with free access to restricted grazing. However, we do need to consider how large the field is before we implement the strip grazing situation. In our study, strip grazing without a back fence was no less effective than strip grazing with a back fence, even though the grazing area got larger every day. However, in some situations, for example, in large fields or during periods of particularly high grass growth, using a back fence may be more effective. Um, grazing muzzles are a brilliant way of reducing grass intake and they can do so by about 80 percent 
but we do need to use them with care. They shouldn't be left on for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They do need to be introduced really carefully. Um, think about introducing them in exactly the same way as you would introduce a new piece of uh, bridle or a saddle. We need to think about how that making sure that they can drink if they're out um, in the field with a muzzle on and their herd dynamics. Um, horses wearing a muzzle aren't able to mutually groom each other. They're not able to defend themselves as well. And so we need to make sure that they are settled and an established herd. We also do need to be really aware of binge eating something that ponies will do um, and they can consume up to one percent of their body weight that, that could be two and a half kilograms in just three hours without a muzzle so taking the muzzle off when the horse is still out on the same grass could be really detrimental and could result in them actually uh, consuming much more grass than they would have done should their muzzle have not been on at all for example some other ways of reducing the sugar intake of the forage is to perhaps consider turning out at night. But we do have to be careful of the potential increased hours and therefore then the increased intake. We can obviously avoid turning out on sunny, frosty mornings because what we get there is a, a rush of sugar into the grass leaf, which the horse may consume. consume. We need to consider our forage as well, so our hay and haylage. Um, ideally, we're going to look for a hay that is less than 10 to 12 percent NSC. NSC stands for non-structural carbohydrates. So that's starch plus water soluble carbohydrate. We can't tell by looking at our forage whether it is a high NSC hay or whether it's low. So we really do have to have it analysed. That can be tricky if we're on a, a livery yard because obviously sometimes the hay is provided without us being able to buy something differently. We shouldn't also automatically assume that haylage is going to be higher in NSC than hay. In some cases it may not be. Again, highlighting the importance of analysis. We can consider soaking our hay or feeding a hay replacer either partially or fully. If we're going to replace some of our hay, we can use straw we can replace 30 to 50% of the forage ration as straw as long as we introduce gradually. So the horse has time to adapt to that straw as a forage source, but also to chewing it. If we're going to soak our hay to help reduce the um, NSC levels, this is really variable. And that's the downside of, of, of using soaking as the only means of looking and reducing the sugar content of our hay. But as a guide, when we are soaking our hay, the time it takes to soak it may depend on the temperature outside. Roughly one to three hours in warm weather and six to 12 in cold weather. Of course, you may have a horse that's overweight but's not yet had laminitis. It's still really important to follow these rules. Because obesity um, and being overweight is a key factor, managing your horse and pony, if it is overweight, as if they could have laminitis is really key. There's a lot of confusion about how much forage should I feed. And that's sometimes the reason horses don't lose as much weight in the winter as perhaps they would do in the wild. Technically, a minimum of 1.5% of the horse's current body weight is what we would recommend. But this is on a dry matter basis. So this takes into account none of the water. And even a dry hay, contains some water. 
So when we are considering soaking our hay, we have to remember that our hay net will contain less hay and more water after it's soaked. So if we are soaking our hay for an hour or more, we'll need to increase the amount you are soaking by around 20%, unless of course you're feeding ad lib. That may be in the region of nine and a half to 11 kilograms if you're soaking your hay to the same horse that we were unsoaked feeding eight to nine kilos of hay per day. Practically, we can also try counting our horse's droppings. That may seem a little strange, but it does help us to monitor the intake um, of, of what our horses are, are getting in from their forage. And we can aim, if we're looking for weight loss, to reduce the, the number of droppings by around a third initially, if the pony is overweight. But we never want to reduce the number of droppings they do by more than a half. So getting to know how many droppings your horse does on a normal basis and then looking for a reduction as we start to reduce that forage may be really useful to help you see that you're feeding an adequate amount of, uh, of forage required for that horse to ensure weight loss. Of course, we also have to remember the importance of a balanced diet. It's essential for all horses and ponies, but becomes even more important when the grass is restricted and the forage soaked. Balances are one of the best ways of ensuring that your horse or pony gets the nutrition he needs without increasing the risk of laminitis. Balances can cut the calories in the diet, but not the nutrients. Balances provide the vitamins, minerals and quality protein that can be deficient in a forage only diet. And again, because of that low feeding rate, most balancers are suitable for laminitic prone horses and ponies. But there are some other balancers that are specifically designed to provide even higher levels of quality protein, um, like lysine, which is an essentially amino acid. And this is particularly important on for those horses on um, restricted forage or no grass and soaked hay, because these can, levels of lysine can be deficient in those diets of those horses. I guess in summary, laminitis should be considered a risk for all horses as it doesn't just affect ponies or those who are overweight. But if you have a horse or pony with a body condition score of a seven or above on that one to nine to scale, weight loss should be considered important, really important, and maybe even a matter of urgency and using it whatever measures you have available to, you, to help you with that weight loss. Additionally, those ponies that may have that regional adiposity, the crusty neck, should also be managed really cautiously. Um, and perhaps we should keep their body condition score of somewhere between a four and a five out of nine coming out of the winter. It's important to remember those that have the crusty neck sometimes can be in a, in a good body condition score elsewhere. So they maybe you can see their ribs even, or they have a nice hip definition, or they don't carry fat pockets on their bum, but they still have this crusty neck. And therefore, it's really important that we actually look at the horse as an overall, because we may not be able to reduce that neck any further, and we just have to monitor it. So I hope that's been useful. Thank you very much for listening, um, and have a great day. Thank you to Isabel for giving us her valuable advice there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this month by Spillers. We'll be back on the 13th of April when we'll have an interview with a dressage rider. And then later in the month, I'll be speaking to event rider Felicity Collins about her badminton debut last year and her hopes for the big event this year. So there's lots to look forward to on the Horse and Hound podcast next month. Speak to you soon. The 
The Horse and Hound Podcast is a Media Cage production.